So let's begin our first conference with the topic of wisdom. It's a rare topic to be considered in the university context today. It is surprisingly rare to hear a discussion of the topic in philosophy, even though it's the original inspiration for philosophy, the love of wisdom. If you go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and look up the entry on wisdom, you'll be surprised at how very short it is. Just a few paragraphs, most of which is a quote from Robert Nozick. Um, so all these millennia of wisdom seeking, and there's not a lot to say about it. At least we could say in normal or mainline contexts. Not only is it a rare topic, there's also, we could say, a kind of opposition to the topic. There's an opposition to what are called meta-narratives, big pictures, grand theories. At least in principle, there's a, a kind of opposition to this. You'll see people denouncing these, saying that they're at the roots of totalitarian regimes and other such bold claims. At the same time, though, as we'll find out, there is a kind of wisdom that's put forward in our contemporary society and universities that's more or less the predominant wisdom, if we can call it wisdom, and we're going to discuss that tonight as we go. So even though the topic of wisdom is passé or even opposed, still human beings cannot escape big wisdom claims, as we'll see. So what is it? What is wisdom? Let's start with a definition of the word, a nominal definition. Here's one that comes from Garrigou Lagrange, echoing Aristotle. That wisdom is a comprehensive vision of all things. Everyone is agreed. That's where Garrigou Lagrange begins, a kind of definition of the word, a, a comprehensive vision of all things. Now, what kind of vision is he talking about? Yes, it's all-embracing. It takes everything into it somehow. But it's not just a vision that we have with our eyes. That's clear enough. No one has a vision of all things with their physical vision or eyes. Now, the vision that he's talking about is a higher kind of vision, the vision of the mind or intellect, which we could call understanding. So another way to th say it is that wisdom is a comprehensive understanding of all things. Now, what do we mean by understanding? Aristotle says at the very beginning of the metaphysics, this great book dedicated to wisdom, philosophical wisdom, is that all human beings by nature desire to understand. It's written into our nature. It's a drive, a proclivity, an inclination we can't get away from it. We want to understand. And it's quite clear when you read Aristotle as a whole that he means something quite specific by understand in this context. He means grasping the causes of things, getting the explanations of things. That's what we are driven towards. We cannot but want it. That's why we have traffic jams on the freeway. Everyone lines up and traffic slows down because everyone wants to know why is this here? Why is this, why is this uh, traffic back up here? 
We have to get our explanation. And we're not satisfied until we do. So wisdom then is this comprehensive understanding of all things, understanding specifically in the sense of an explanation. We're looking for an explanation of things. Now, there's a way we go looking for explanations of things in particular domains. We can look for explanations in the domain of biology, right, in the domain of living things. We can look for explanations in the domain of moving things, as in physics. We can look for explanations in the domain of human beings, specifically, anthropology or psychology. But what, what, what Aristotle has in mind when he talks about wisdom is a search for an explanation of things, but not limited to one particular domain. It's not limited to biological things or chemical things or moving things or human beings. What wisdom is, is a comprehensive vision or understanding of all things. The domain is unrestricted. It's a search for an explanation of all things that are. That's one way we can understand wisdom. So here's a sort of definition that captures all these various elements. Wisdom is an all-embracing understanding of reality as a whole. Wisdom is an all-embracing understanding of reality as a whole in light of ultimate causes, especially in light of the end or goal of all things, because the final cause is the cause of causes. We don't know why agents are at work in the world unless we know what they're working for. We don't ultimately know why they're working. Wisdom is an all-embracing understanding of reality as a whole in light of ultimate causes, especially in light of the end or goal of all things. Okay, when we understand wisdom in that sense or in this way, you can start to see that even though the world around us does not talk about wisdom, doesn't uh, sing its praises, as, say, ancient philosophers used to. And even though we find in our contemporary context even a kind of opposition on principle to meta-narratives, grand schemes, big pictures, uh, or things like that, nonetheless, we find there is a wisdom that is put forward or advanced. What can we call it? St. Paul, Paul calls it the wisdom of the world the sapientia mundi. Human beings can't get away from making large claims about reality as a whole. Even if you were to say, there is no grand account of things. That is a kind of totalizing claim. It's a sort of grand account of things or sets you up for one. It's called nihilism, basically. So, what is the wisdom of the world? It's, it's the expression St. Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19. The wisdom of the world. How can we understand it? In the letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 18, he gives a warning against being captivated by philosophy, but not just philosophy in any way, but a specific kind of philosophy. He calls it philosophy according to human tradition. According to the, well, there's different translations, the elemental spirits of the universe 
or just the elements of the universe. The stoicheia to cosmu. What are those? They're the first principles, the most fundamental material units of things. That's one interpretation of that passage. In other words, what St. Paul is saying is watch out for those philosophies that try to account for everything in terms of fundamental material units. That's one interpretation of that passage. St. Thomas has that interpretation. He notes it among other possible interpretations. And contemporary commentators on the passage say the same thing. That's one legitimate interpretation of that passage. St. Paul is warning specifically against those attempts to account for all of reality in terms of material alone or fundamental material units, the elements, the principles, the material principles of things. In other words, what we have is a warning within the New Testament against the wisdom of the world, which is identified more or less, at least in this passage on this interpretation, with what we could call naturalism, physicalism, and associated with it, scientism. So let's take a moment to talk about these views because this constitutes what we could call the core of the sapientia mundi, the wisdom of the world. The actual big picture, which is actually advanced in our contemporary context, while at the same time we hear that there is no big picture or we shouldn't advance them. So how can we understand naturalism? Just speaking very basically, right? We can say naturalism is the view, very simply speaking, that nature is all there is. Okay? Nature is all there is. It's a view that goes back to the ancient philosophers, there's no doubt about it. The atomists, Empedocles, others advance this view. But equally as much, it is the predominant contemporary view of the world around us and of human beings. A nice, simple, clear statement of naturalism comes from the Australian philosopher David Armstrong. Here's how he defines it. Naturalism is the doctrine that reality consists of nothing but a single, all-embracing, spatio-temporal system. That's how he does it. Naturalism is the doctrine that reality consists of nothing but a single, all-embracing, spatio-temporal system. This, Armstrong thinks, allows him to say what he wants to say regarding what there is, or what there could be, perhaps. Angels don't show up in a spatio-temporal system. They don't have bodies. God does not show up in a spatio-temporal system. He doesn't have a body. Souls don't show up in a spatio-temporal system. They're not bodies, or at least on one understanding of soul. Okay? So this allows him to say what he wants to say about the world in which we live. This is a, a big-picture assertion. There exists nothing but a single, all-embracing, spatio-temporal system. That's what he calls naturalism. Now, as you may know, some of you may know, but 
many of you may not, a distinction is typically drawn between naturalism and what's often now called physicalism, okay? An additional view, more specific, because naturalism has a number of questions that can be raised about it. What is physicalism? It's a, another kind of raw assertion. The physical is all there is. Be a very general way to put it. The physical is all there is. Difficulties with that come up, though. What do you mean by physical? So, you know, ancient atomists would say uh, there's, there's atoms, and these atoms move about, and that's all there is. There's atoms. That's it. And then an objector might say something like, well, in what do they move? Is there, like, like space or void? So they have to say, no, there's, okay, so there's a void. All right? So is a void a physical thing or not? Especially if you define it as the absence of a body. If, the, if a void is the absence of a body, then how can it be a physical thing? By physical thing, do you mean something that's just bodies or something other than bodies, too? So they would try to reformulate it. Well, whatever exists is either atoms or a void. Okay? Well, then what are the causes at work? Okay, it's chance. Chance is then real, too, but... But what is chance? That seems to be very different from either a body or a void, but something that's like at play, like a process or something. Okay, so what is meant by physical? That presses on the view of physicalism. And again, I'll go to David Armstrong to give a simple, clear statement of physicalism, or at least his understanding of physicalism. Here's what Armstrong says again. Physicalism, quote, there exists nothing but the entities recognized by physics. End quote. That's his view of physicalism. There exists nothing but the entities recognized by physics. So if physicists in their laboratories or with their coats on and as they run their experiments, if they acknowledge that something exists or acknowledge that it has various properties or if they refer to it as an existing thing, if they instantiate their variables to it in their equations, okay, it counts as being. If physicists don't recognize something as existing, then it doesn't. That's what seems to be the implication of this view, okay? Now, let's notice something on this definition of physicalism. What it does is it skirts all the kind of questions about what counts as physical. You don't have to, the philosopher's not burdened with specifying here are the conditions of what counts as physical or here's the conditions of what's in my ontology. He, as it were, shoves all that off on the physicist. And the physicist, they'll tell us what's really real, what's really there. They'll tell us what the stuff there is. But what he's done by doing that is tie his account of what's real to a particular discipline. He's tied his account of what's there in reality to our understanding, or somebody's understanding, at least the physicist's understanding of things. And we can start to raise all kinds of questions about this. Well, what happens if the science changes? What happens when theories are, uh, let's say, accepted or rejected? Do things begin to be and cease to be just because the theories are come to be or pass away? And there's there's um, various ways of dealing with all that. The most common way of dealing with it, it seems to me, is to say that 
there exists nothing but what is recognized by the ideal physics, right? The completed physics that we will have uh, at some point off in the future when all of our scientific progress uh, fully realizes all of its potential that was promised to us by the Enlightenment, we will have uh, an account of reality, okay? A complete account of reality. That's the promise, the ideal physics, whatever the ideal physics acknowledges. Okay, there's lots of questions and objections we could raise about that. But what I just want to make is a briefer, simpler point that this way of cashing out physicalism by tying the understanding of what's real to our understanding of just things themselves by saying what exists is what we understand to exist in our physics or in our ideal physics. By making that move, there seems to be a commitment to what we could call scientism, which is an associated view. So if naturalism and physicalism are metaphysical views, their assertions about what exists, scientism is an epistemological view. It's an assertion about how we know. How do we know reality? How do we know what's there? A very simple way to understand scientism is to understand it as a kind of identification between reason and modern science or contemporary science. Reason is the capacity for science, or more simply put, reason is science. There's almost an equation there, okay? If you're doing science, you're exercising reason. If you're not doing science, you're not exercising reason. Something else is going on, but it's not a rational, it's not an exercise of your rationality, okay? That's one simple, perhaps simplistic way of understanding scientism. But we could go further and say, we could define scientism as the claim that science is the only reliable source of knowledge. Science is the only reliable source of knowledge. And if you want to raise objections about the use of the term knowledge, you could rephrase it in various ways. You could say science is the only reliable source of objectively justified beliefs. You could make claims like this. Okay, you could, we can modify it in various ways. And all of these have been tweaked by a lot of, a lot of different people in order to, to make them work. Okay? But let's start to notice what we have here is now is something like a package. Reality consists of nothing but a single all-embracing spatio-temporal system. There exists nothing but the entities recognized by physics. And if you want to know the world, you need to have recourse to the sciences. Scientific methodologies or scientific forms of verification are the only way to know reality. Okay? That'd be one statement of scientism. Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, but who actually believes scientism in such a naive, simply stated form? There's a professor of philosophy at Duke University, Alex Rosenberg, who wrote a book a few years ago, The Atheist's Guide to Reality, where he comes out in the book and says, I am embracing scientism. I don't care what the pejoratives are uh, or what sense it's used by the I, I'm going all in. I am embracing scientism. So here are some serious minds and serious professors uh, in serious positions who are advancing this. 
But what's more important than maybe names that we could name is what we could call a kind of spirit, a zeitgeist, right? There's a sort of atmosphere. You experience it all the time in your classrooms, in uh, the discussions you have, the ways that discourse is limited by a certain set of presuppositions that are hovering in the background, and sometimes not even hovering in the background, but are explicitly asserted. And what's hovering in the background, and sometimes explicitly asserted, and always limiting and sort of defining the range of terms and claims and methods that may be used in discourse, is this package. There exists nothing but a single, all-embracing spatio-temporal system with, with the entities recognized by physics, and physics will tell us, in the end, the truth about the world, the whole truth, okay? That's always, does it seem right to you that that's always kind of there in the background? Even if no one you know has actually affirmed these, I mean, these are, these are taken from actual thinkers, but even, yeah, even without someone who's actually there giving you these particular propositions, there's variations on the theme all around you. And they form a kind of zeitgeist in which we sort of live every day and we take it in um, to, the, to such an extent that you don't even notice it. And, but we should notice that these are an all-embracing account of reality. You're saying something about the way that all of reality is and the way we are to know all of reality. So we can call it the wisdom of the world. This is the world's wisdom. This is the wisdom on tap in your universities. Okay? And not just the universities. It's also on tap in our society at large, in the government, in political discourse. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go and speak on Capitol Hill to a group of congressional staff. And they asked to, uh, for a talk on faith and reason. So I went and I gave them a talk and I went through these positions and laid out, here's how a very common understanding of reason and the, the structure of reality, naturalism, physicalism, scientism, these sorts of things. And after the talk was over, a couple of the staff, congressional staff came up to me and they said, this is absolutely correct. This is the operative assumption of all discourse that takes place in Congress. The underlying assumption of all the discourse is that if you cannot verify something with a scientific, uh, if you cannot, sh with a scientific method of verification, if you don't have science to back up each and every statement or claim you make, it just doesn't count as true or as assertable in public discourse. They said that is just simply a given. It's an operative principle in the discourse that takes place in Congress. So we're not talking about a, a straw man here. It seems to me that this is a live, a live philosophy that's at work in our society. Okay? We don't have time to go through all of the various problems with these principles, these positions, vast and massive topics. And every time we could raise an objection to one statement, we could draw a number of distinctions, and we could come up with a nuanced variation. And then we could raise objections to those positions, and we'd come up with more nuance, more distinctions. And we could break these down into 
15, 20 different versions, reductive materialism, non-reductive materialism, the whole thing, okay? And, and all the various forms and theories that branch out from there. But what we'll do, in keeping with the general way in which we're speaking right now, we'll give a general kind of response. There's four basic problems that go with this package. Four problems that face the sapientia mundi. The first problem is self-referential defeat. Whenever we try to make statements that limit what there is or what we know or how we know, there's nothing but this or we cannot know in any way except through this means. Whenever we make these kinds of reductionist statements, we very often run into problems of self-referential defeat. So if you were to say it's impossible to know anything except through science, that very statement itself is referentially at least questionable and probably self-defeating, okay? At least if you're claiming to know it, it's self-defeating, okay? So we run into problems with self-referential defeat, particularly with scientism. It's hard to even state the view without stating it in a way that just defeats itself. Uh, Rosenberg gives like a long description, okay, as how he does it, how he kind of circumvents the self-referential defeat issue. But that's only the first problem. That's pretty common when we try to state these things. Alvin Plantinga, by the way, has famously given an argument that naturalism or physicalism suffers a kind of self-referential defeat. If naturalism is true, then there's no reason to think that our cognitive capacities are reliable. Or, there's another way to put it, if naturalism is true, our cognitive capacities are either unreliable or their reliability is inscrutable. So if naturalism is true, the warrant or justification for asserting it is undermined. There's a defeater. It defeats itself. So there's ways we can make self-referential defeat arguments against each of these. Again, with lots of nuance and distinctions that we can draw as we go. But there's other issues. You can see right off the bat, just by stating these views practically, that we've ruled out the existence of God up front. Okay? You rule it out up front. In fact, there's an ancient philosophical understanding of our human reason, though, which claims that it is possible, quite possible, for human beings to know, by the use of reason, that God exists. These positions, naturalism, physicalism, and scientism, are not self-evident positions. They require arguments in their favor, but that would require them to wrestle at least with the arguments for the existence of God before coming down on the side of naturalism, physicalism, or scientism. Okay? That's one way we could go. Scientism in particular seems to rule out up front the possibility of the existence of God or the possibility of demonstrating the existence of God or at least the facticity of the existence of God, depending on how you present or push these positions. So the question of God receives a premature answer from each of these. It's almost ruled out by definition that God exists. 
But there's a second question or problem that comes up. We could call it the problem of morality. Human beings make truth claims about moral matters all the time. We ought to do this, you ought to do that. Is it possible to make truth claims in moral matters? Is it possible to argue about them? Is there truth in questions of morality or when it comes to values, we might say? If all we have to go on is science, it's extremely difficult to see how one could justify or argue for moral claims, especially if at the same time one is holding certain positions that are pretty commonly held coming out from David Hume that one cannot move from an argument, uh, one cannot move from a statement that something is the case to a statement that something ought to be the case or one ought to do this or ought to do that. Ought claims do not follow from what is. Science tells us what is. That's its limits of its competence. So how could scientific reasoning be used to justify moral claims, especially if that scientific reasoning is loaded with considerations that are anti-teleological up front? If you're thinking of the world in purely mechanistic terms, you don't acknowledge that things have proper ends or goals. They don't have natures of an Aristotelian variety. Trying to make moral arguments from out of a, a purely mechanistic form of science or something like that it seems v very difficult at the least. So what happens in, when, when scientism takes over in a society is it seems like you have two domains. You've got the domains of, of truths, hard facts. These are the things that are verified by science. And then over here you have like moral assertions. And that's like outside the domain of truth or rational justifiability. Okay? That's like a separate, separate level of the house or a separate domain. There's a, a fourth thing, a fourth problem that comes up in addition to self-referential defeat, the question of God and the question of morality. You have the question of the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? And there are a number of people, philosophers and psychologists and otherwise, who want to acknowledge human beings need an answer to the question of the meaning of life. Viktor Frankl, the famous German psychologist from the mid-20th century, built an entire account of human flourishing based upon the drive for meaning. We have a drive for meaning. And if we can't get an answer to the question of meaning, we break down as human beings. Pathology sets in, dysfunction. So the question of the meaning of life is not optional. It's not, not something we can just simply walk away from. But if the only resources we have to go on are naturalism, physicalism, and scientism, what sort of question, what sort of answer can we give to the question of the meaning of life? In fact, interestingly enough, Viktor Frankl, after he wrote his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, made a tour of the United States, and he went around to various campuses giving lectures to various prominent universities. And he did that for a couple of years. And when he was done with his lecture tour, he made a prediction that's very interesting. His prediction was that American society was on a rendezvous 
with pathology on a mass scale. He thought that American society was going to be engulfed by pathology. And when he was asked to explain himself, his answer was that Americans are educated in this weird kind of way where they're told from a very early age there exists nothing but chemicals moving around according to scientific laws. And from the variations and movements of these chemicals operating according to laws, out pops the world as we know it and as we live it and experience it. And there is in this world no ends, no goals, no purposes, no God, no meaning. Except one that you might come up with for yourself. And whether a meaning that you come up with for yourself is really a meaning is a good question. So that's why Viktor Frankl made this prediction. He could see the scientism, this naturalism and physicalism already being propagated on a large scale among students and predicted that it would be that would lead to various pathologies. Okay, that's the Sapientia Mundi. Those are four basic problems that come up with it. We can spell that out in a lot of different ways. Lots of variations on those themes, okay? What's the alternative? That's what we're here to learn this weekend and to, and to be immersed in. We are immersed in this kind of matrix of scientism, naturalism, physicalism all the time. That's, that's the air we breathe. That's, that's, everything is, seems to be conditioned by that. It's in the background of everything. So what's marvelous about the opportunity to make a retreat is that you can come out of the environment where you're ordinarily immersed in this and where alternatives rarely come to light. And we can come together and we can present an alternative and become immersed, at least for a weekend, in a rival and incompatible way of looking at the world, of understanding things. How can we understand what we're going to do this weekend? I want to situate everything we're going to discuss this weekend, the, the metaphysics and the arguments for the existence of God and the discussions of divine providence and all the great things we're going to discuss. I want to situate it within the context of three things that Pope St. John Paul II calls for in his encyclical Fides et Ratio. In that encyclical, he enunciates three tasks for contemporary philosophers. And he, he doesn't say just Christian philosophers. But Christian philosophers, it seems, should seize upon this. Three tasks. Here's the first one. Philosophy must, quote, recover its sapiential dimension as a search for the ultimate and overarching meaning of life. Philosophy must recover its sapiential dimension as a search for the ultimate and overarching meaning of life. So precisely in the face of these philosophies that tell us basically either there is no ultimate meaning of life or we can't know it or you just make it up for yourself, what we do is go in search of an objective answer to that question, one that we can know. That's one of the basic functions of philosophy. Second, philosophy must, quote, verify the human capacity to know the truth. Verify the human capacity to know the truth. And he's quite clear 
that by truth he means the very being of things. Not truth in the sense of warranted assertability or coherence with the rest of one's beliefs, but an actual, the truth of things, the very being of things. Can we know reality for what it is, for what it is? The third thing that philosophy needs to do is be capable of transcending empirical data. That's the response to the scientism. Be capable of transcending empirical data in order to obtain something absolute, ultimate, and foundational. Philosophy needs to be capable of transcending empirical data in order to obtain something absolute, ultimate, and foundational. In other words, philosophy can't just be more science or say, hey, if you want to know the ultimate story about things, just go look at the science. Philosophy needs to tell us something different than just the science. Something, as he puts it, absolute, ultimate, and foundational. Now, I wanted to give those things and state them here because those of you who are students in philosophy will maybe not be familiar with Fides et Ratio. It certainly won't be reading in your classes, typically. Those of you who are not students of philosophy are probably just not all that familiar with philosophical ways of thinking and knowing truth. The point John Paul II wants to make is that there is a way that we can know the meaning of life. We have a capacity to not just make up stories about it, but actually to know the truth about the meaning of life. And we know that not just by scientific methodologies or verification procedures. There's a properly philosophical way of knowing. And what we want to do in the last few minutes of this conference is just give some examples, basic. You could say uh, kiddie examples, uh, philosophy 101 kinds of examples of knowing truth. Is it possible for human beings to know something absolute, ultimate, and foundational? Here's a proposal, an ancient proposal, that I hope you've heard and we can discuss. Consider the proposition, there is truth. There is truth. It's an assertion, an existential assertion. There is truth. What would happen if someone were to deny it? Surely you've been through the exercise. I hope you've been through the exercise. If someone were to say, there is no truth, and surely you've heard someone say this, I'm sure, at some point, uh, there is no truth, what do you get? You get a self-contradiction. What about that very statement itself? Is it true? If it is true, then there is truth. If it's not true, then we concede the point. Okay? And so there is truth. This statement has been yeah. around since the days of the ancient philosophers as an example of something 
that is, as it were, absolute and foundational. Okay? You can't prove this. You can only show that the denial leads to a contradiction, which is a kind of proof, but it's not a derivation from premises. It is a, we might call it a first principle. You could call it, if you want to use Kant's language, synthetic a priori. You're saying something about the world. There is truth. You're saying something about the real. But we know it a priori. What do we mean by that? We'll come to that. Let's take a step further. Consider this. If you think, do you think we know this, this statement? If we call this number one, there is truth. We could have another premise, which would be, we know number one. Okay. And if both of these are true, what follows? You could say a number of things. It's possible for us to know something. Okay? That's good. A good start over and against absolute kinds of skepticisms that come against us. That'd be one thing you could do. You could start to draw conclusions. If we know that, if one is true, if it's an absolute foundational statement, and if we know it, then we know some absolute foundational truth. As John Paul II says, we need to verify this or show that we can do this. We can go further. How do you know, how do you know, number one? How do you know that there's truth? Did you, did you, how did you verify that or come to know it? Is it like knowing that, you know, the water in the shower is hot? How do you know that? You know that by sticking out your hand, feeling the water. Say, okay, the water's hot, it's warm, it's cold. There's a kind of sensory verification there. You use your senses, a sense of touch. Or you can see, taste, smell, touch in here. We can call those sensory verification. Okay, call that sensory verification. Do you know this by sensory verification? Did you see, taste, smell, touch, or hear something? No, that, it's not an a posteriori claim that way. It seems to be noble a priori, meaning prior to and independently of a particular act of verifying a particular proposition with your senses. Though we're not going to claim you know it prior to all experience whatsoever. You have to have some original acquaintance with reality that you got through experience. That's presupposed. So it seems that we know number one without using a scientific method. We didn't run an experiment. We didn't use our five senses. We didn't measure anything. We didn't weigh anything. We don't use the methods of the sciences to do that. So it's possible for us to know at least some absolute and foundational truth without using scientific methods or any methods of empirical verification. That's a bold claim, okay? Now, I'm not making the claim that's the only way we can know such truths, but I'm just saying we can know some truths, at least some, without using scientific methods or empirical verification. Now, let's make another point. When we assert number one or any of the additional points that I've been making that follow from one and two, when I've been asserting that, 
have I been telling you the truth? I've been using language. So it seems we can use language to speak the truth. It's possible to use language to speak truth. It's possible to use language to speak absolute and foundational truth. That's an important claim because there are a lot of positions and a lot of views advanced in the universities and beyond to the effect that our language cannot be used to speak absolute truth or anything like that. Truth is, uh, language is not capable of truth, of speaking it. Either human beings are not capable of knowing it or language is not capable of saying it, but what we have in front of us are examples of truth spoken. I can give you others. I'm going to give you some other examples of these kinds of propositions that philosophers have been fascinated with down through the centuries. They're principles that can be known by rational reflection upon things given to us, but they're known not by uh, particular acts of sensory verification. They're known by rational reflection upon what's given. Here are some examples coming to you. I'm going to give you a list. The principle of non-contradiction. It's impossible for something to be and not to be at the same time and in the same sense. Reality is self-consistent. It's self-consistent. It follows from the principle of non-contradiction. Here's another famous one from Kant. Every event has a cause. Try to think of an event without a cause and the mind like rejects it. It just rejects it. it it's, there's a kind of rational insight that makes us say the event must have a cause. There's got to be some cause. Here's another one. It, it, it is impossible to desire something without knowing it. It's impossible to desire something without knowing it, at least in some way. You've got to know it at least in some way. If there was a, an island out in the Pacific Ocean and you did not know that it was there in any way whatsoever, could you want to go there? Here's another one. All colors have extension. That'd be an interesting one to sit with. All colors have extension. Could you have a color that has no extension whatsoever? Here's another one. In order for a person to be morally responsible for an act, in order for a person to be morally responsible for an act, he or she must be free in enacting it. In order for a person to be morally responsible for an act, he or she must be free in enacting it. If you're not in any way free, and something was just simply happening to you, whether through chemical reactions or you know, other such uh, causal stories, macroscopic or microscopic, would you be morally responsible at all? 
It seems not, though some may try to deny that. Now, here's what we can do, is present these as examples of philosophical truths. There's a philosophical tradition, we could call it the tradition of philosophical realism, that St. Thomas is operating in. And the philosophical realist is someone who holds that there is a reality prior to and independently of the human mind and we are capable of knowing reality for what it is. And yeah, that's philosophical realism. And from, from, those, two pre, from those two positions, there is a reality prior to and independently of the mind and we are capable of knowing that reality, at least to some extent. From out of that falls this tradition, this practice of hunting down these special kinds of truths. Call them what? Call them first principles? Call them per se nota truths? Those are St. Thomas's own ways of describing them. Call them synthetic a priori propositions if you want to use Kant's language. There's this domain of truths that we are capable of hunting down and elaborating them more and more through great effort, through difficulty, through hard questions. We're capable of elaborating them. And in fact, humanity has arrived at some perennial principles. Eternal truths, we could call them. There are certain truths that are what they are. They won't change. They won't pass away. And we can know them. Or at least catch a glimpse of them to some extent. But they do constitute a rich basis for a life. And we can go from there and from these truths on to grand claims like arguments for the existence of God and other topics that are associated with that, like divine providence. That's what we're here for this weekend. We're here to engage in the practice of perennial philosophy. So we're going to start with the understanding that there is a reality prior to and independently of ourselves. We're capable of knowing it, at least to some extent of catching a glimpse. There are certain truths, eternal truths, we can call them, that don't change. And from them follow conclusions of great, great significance for a human being. The hope then is to be immersed in a wisdom which is not the world's wisdom, but a wisdom that opens us up to another world, the world of God and the world of, yeah, the truth itself. Sound good? Okay.